Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Before we start, we want to tell you about a great way to get some Christmas presents sorted. Yes, our early bird offer lets you buy a gift subscription to New Scientist from just £49.50 and that includes a free goodie bag worth over £40. In your goodie bag you get three copies of the New Scientist Essential Guide and it all comes in a lovely gift box. So go to newscientist.com slash earlybird22 and get your presents sorted early. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. This is the show that brings you a curated selection of the essential stories of the week. And our aim here is to feed your curiosity. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. Welcome to the show. So this week, we're joined by New Scientist journalists, Madeleine Cuff, Sam Wong, Chris Sims and Alexandra Thompson. Welcome all. Hello. Hi. Hello, everybody. On the show this week, we have a notorious life form of the week. We have amazing news from Mars. We have genetically modified mosquitoes in Brazil. And also in Brazil, we have the defeat of an extremist president. Hooray. Hooray. Yeah. Uh, all that to come. Let's start with a roundup of climate news. Um, and Maddie, you're off to Egypt soon for COP27, aren't you? Yes, that's right. Yep, COP starts on Sunday this week. So ahead of that, we had a huge round of climate reports and assessment from the likes of the UN, the World Meteorological Organization, the International Energy Agency, the list goes on. And is it all brilliant news? <laughs> <laughs> so they actually, I don't know why I'm laughing, they painted quite a sobering picture of um, the state yeah. of the world's climate. So the World Meteorological Organization confirmed that atmospheric concentrations of planet warming gases, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide and methane, they all hit a record high in 2021. And as things stand under current climate pledges set by nations, the world is on course for about two and a half to 2.8 degrees of warming by the end of the century, which would be pretty catastrophic. Yeah, yeah, it is bad. Um, but I was joking before, but there is some hope, isn't there? There is some hope, yes. Um, so those projections, so this kind of central projection is for about 2.6 degrees of warming by the end of the century. But that temperature rise is based on countries meeting most of the targets in their official 2030 climate plan. So those are the plans submitted to the UN. But there's a best case scenario, which is where nations implement all of their climate ambitions and meet their longer term net zero goals, uh, which aren't submitted under the UN. 
But if all of that happens, then global temperatures would only rise by about 1.8 degrees by the end of this century, which is much better. Yeah, as long as you're not living (laughs) in a low-lying area or in a place that's already uh, really suffering. But yeah, of course, it is much better. And we said on the pod the other day that, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, obviously it's horrendous. It's brought a lot of misery and death, but it might have well accelerated the, the shift to green energy globally. Yeah, it's sort of pushed countries to realise that rather than relying on very volatile fossil fuels for their energy, they can actually roll out renewables, um, often for much cheaper. So for the first time last week, the International Energy Agency predicted that global demand for fossil fuels will peak in 15 years, and that's even under current strategies. So Mm. it could happen sooner if countries move faster on climate, as they've promised. Yeah. Okay. So at best, we can say it's it's a mixed picture going into COP27. And we'll talk to you from Egypt while you're there. So in related news, me and Maddie went to see Greta Thunberg speak at the weekend at the London Literature Festival. Quite a celebrity packed night, wasn't it, Maddie? Did you spot anyone famous? It was. I got very excited because I spotted Mark Rylance yeah, across the room and he's a great hero of mine. Yeah, and mine. I know. I would have lost my, <laughs> I would have lost all <laughs> sense of propriety. Uh, I did speak to David Bedil in the toilet, which, uh, you know, <laughs> that's my claim to fame. Yeah. Uh, but what did you make of, of Greta um, when she was on stage? I mean, obviously, it was really preaching to the converted, wasn't it? Like she was cheered like an absolute, well, like the legend she is, but it was it was preaching to the converted, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a bit like a rock star coming on stage yeah. when she sort of first made the entrance. And we were all, I mean, myself included in this, a bit starstruck, really, about seeing her kind of in London in the flesh. Yeah. But I thought that kind of raised some interesting questions. So... Obviously, most of the people, I'd say probably 99.9% of people in the room were very supportive of her and what she was trying to do. But I I worry that maybe there's a bit of kind of preaching to the converted in that. I mean, our society, it sort of seems like it's fracturing. We're all existing in our own social media bubbles and we've seen the rise of fake news and misinformation online. And there's a sense that, you know, everything that we read is reinforcing our existing beliefs. And so ultimately, if Greta wants to kind of get the truth out about climate change to as many people as possible, that kind of seems increasingly difficult in the online world that we exist in today. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's why there was a lot of talk about positive tipping points and getting um, an enough people, enough activists, really, to really get drag the all of society over. Because she talked about how a lot of the activists really come from the young and the old. And everyone cheered that at the time on, on Sunday night. But those two sections of society are, are the ones with all due respect don't have that much power, right? Yeah, maybe we should be asking why it is that it's teenagers and boomers leading the charge to be doing all these really radical protests. And I think there's probably something about the the society that we live in that locks people into high house prices, into working all hours of the day. Like maybe kind of the sort of working segment of the population just don't feel like they can take that risk. And so maybe we need to be doing more to enable people from all sections of the population to kind of stand up and say that they want change. Another thing I did wonder about was, um, and we've spoken about this on the pod before, is like she really does slate the cops that, you know, the the whole mechanism of, of action on climate change and says that they're greenwashing events and they're not only a waste of time, but they're, they, are, they are actually a means of maintaining the status quo. 
I, I mean, a lot of climate scientists do get slightly frustrated with that because, you know, they are slow. They're not they're not doing enough. But we have got action. And as you say, if it all did happen, we'd we'd get to one point eight. So, you know, what what are your feelings on that? Well, so if I'm allowed a little plug on here, my uh, new Fix the Planet newsletter deals with this question and it's going out today. So you can sign up for that on uh, the website. But yes, I mean, anyone who has sat through any part of a COP meeting knows how frustrating and glacial the pace of change in there is. They can spend hours arguing over the placement of a comma. Yeah. But there has, and after quite a few false starts over the years, they've tried various different treaties, which kind of came to nothing in the end but then finally in 2015 we got the Paris Agreement which is the first completely universal treaty that countries signed up to and sort of promised to reduce their emissions under and that is now you know as you say we've seen that the projections for temperature rise have come down since that agreement was reached so you know maybe this is like a huge tanker that we're trying to turn in the sea it takes a while but it's kind of rerouting the kind of global economy and political systems in the right direction, albeit not fast enough. And I guess the question is, what what other type of meeting would work? There has to kind of be some forum for countries to come together and discuss these issues and to check on each other's progress. And if mm. it's not a COP, then then what is it? Well, let's leave that hanging. <laughs> you know, I, I, anyone, any ideas, uh, please get in touch. Okay, from greenwashing to the red planet. Everyone like that clever link there? Um, yeah, we're talking about Mars now. Actually, some amazing stuff happening there, isn't there, Chris? Yeah, two big things. It may still have hot magma and it may have a water table. Yeah, they're kind of really big things to only just be finding out. How, how have we only just found this out? Well, it's, it's all down to NASA's InSight lander, which reached Mars in 2018. Right. Since then, among other things, it's been recording seismic waves within the ground. Now, okay. on Earth, these are caused by things like earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and even by fast-flowing rivers. And studying the speed and frequency of these waves can tell us about the geology the waves are passing through. Okay. Now we have enough data to see patterns and locate what's causing some of the waves on Mars. By studying a cluster of more than 20 seismic events, scientists have worked out that many of these Mars quakes originate in the Cerberus Fosse region, and the waves they detected look like ones usually associated with volcanic settings on Earth. And this is why the researchers think there must be a magma chamber, and so active volcanism in the area. I think this is amazing, isn't it? I mean, should we not get too carried away yet? And obviously it needs to be confirmed. But we knew that Mars was volcanically active millions of years ago, well, millions of years ago, but we didn't know it was still geologically active. And, and that's got incredible implications for life. Yeah, obviously, we don't know for sure yet, but mm. especially combined with the other bit of news this week from InSight, yeah. um, these are tremors that InSight detected from the impacts of two meteorites that struck Mars in December 2021. It's the first time we've measured seismic waves moving across the surface of another planet. Um, the strange thing about the surface waves is they are moving faster than we expected, given what we know about the crust below InSight. And this tells us two things, that the ground below InSight isn't representative of the planet as a whole, and that the crust between InSight and where the meteorites hit was denser than the stuff below the lander. Okay. Although there isn't enough data to establish the composition of the crust, a possible reason for the denseness is the presence of a water table, much like the ones we have on Earth. Having water in the ground like this would fill gaps between the rocks and boost the ground's density, making the waves travel faster. Wow. 
I, I mean, this has got to be a real high priority to confirm these two things, hasn't it? Because if there is water and and heat from magma under the surface, you know, that's like deep sea vents that we have here. And we know, well, that's where people think life originated. So, you know, could still have life, still have life on Mars. Uh, it's huge. Yeah, let's, let's keep our ears to the ground and listen for more waves. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. To Brazil now. Um, wild celebrations, Sam, right? Uh, yes, uh, depending on your outlook, but I think most of us uh, here were pretty pretty pleased that the uh, it was a very closely contested um, runoff election between the right wing incumbent president Jair Bolsonaro and Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who's a former president who's uh, staged a remarkable comeback really, and he won the election by a, a close margin of one point eight percent of the vote. Yeah. Okay, I know. I said wild celebrations, and I did see a lot of partying going on on video clips on Twitter and stuff. But what's the reaction been from environmentalists? Well, relief more than anything. Um, So Bolsonaro has presided over soaring rates of deforestation in the Amazon. He actively promoted development of the rainforest, stripped back environmental regulations, gutted the environmental institutions of uh, expertise and funding. So, yeah, I think anyone who is trying to protect the Amazon is is pretty happy about the result. Uh, Luke Taylor, who reported on this for us, he spoke to um, a scientist at Oxford, Erica Berenguer, who works on the impact of deforestation. And she said, Bolsonaro was like having to silence a scream inside you every day as you watch the object of your life, your career and your passion destroyed. Lula's election is a victory not only for the region, but for humanity and life itself. Yeah, that is, that's an incredible quote, isn't it? But absolutely right. You can know, you can really feel uh, the importance of of Lula's win. Um, But what's his credentials like? So he was president before from 2003 to 2010. And in that time, the area of forest lost per year uh, declined markedly from about 25,000 square kilometres to about 7,000 square kilometres. So his record is largely positive, And he's he's pledged to subsidise sustainable farming, set up a ministry for indigenous peoples and create a national climate change authority that's going to ensure that Brazil's policies are in line with the Paris Agreement goals. Yeah. And we've reported on the pod before how illegal mining and ranching and gang control has been allowed to flourish under Bolsonaro. And, uh, you know, I, I remember someone saying that Lula, you know, this was back before he'd won. If Lula wins, he'll basically have a war to fight in the Amazon to get this under control. 
yeah, there has been this sort of lawlessness uh, in the Amazon that's been flourishing. Uh, so he's going to have to expel these criminal gangs who've been moving into indigenous land and, and mining and ranching. Many of these groups have allies in local governments, so that's not going to be an easy task. Bolsonaro has proposed a series of bills that are um, that could be passed before Lula takes office on the 1st of January, which would encourage commercial activities and legalise mining on indigenous land. So that as well could make his job even more difficult. Yeah, I mean, typically, an outgoing president, you know, bows down and says, I'm not going to pass any, you know, you know, really controversial laws during my last last few weeks in office. But yeah, you never know with someone like that. And he has now finally made a, a statement, hasn't he, after the defeat? Yeah, he, he sort of didn't say anything for about two days afterwards. Um, on Tuesday evening, he gave this sort of strange, ambiguous address where he didn't really concede and he didn't say that he was contesting the election. But after that, he spoke to the, the Supreme Court and one of the judges told journalists afterwards that he has accepted defeat. Right. Um, but meanwhile, a lot of his supporters are still staging protests and blocking roads around the country. And they're saying that they want the army to step in and stop Lula from taking power. So um, it's it's very much reminds you of the, the kind Overtones of Trump situation of Trump. Yeah. where, uh, where, you know, he, he was sort of encouraging his his supporters to protest and and make things difficult and unstable and um, we hope that it's all going to end peacefully but um, there's a lot of tension and anger in the country now which is going to be it's going to take a while to to kind of uh, get a lid on yeah but uh, overall to go back to that scientist it's absolute victory for humanity and life itself Did you know that nearly 700 million people a year get a mosquito-borne illness? The worst, of course, is malaria, which kills over 600,000 people a year, um, sadly most of them children. But there are lots of other diseases as well. And that's why so much effort goes into trying to kill or block mosquitoes in the first place. And now genetically modified mosquitoes have been released in a city in Brazil. Alex, what's the story? This was a trial carried out by researchers at the biotechnology firm Oxitec, which is based near Oxford in the UK. Across all mosquito species, only the females bite and can transmit infections like malaria, Zika and dengue. The researchers modified males of the species Aedes aegypti, so they expressed a gene that allowed their male offspring to survive to adulthood, but not their female offspring. From May 2018 to April 2019, the modified males were released into four densely populated neighbourhoods in a city within the state of Sao Paulo. Three times a week, two of these neighbourhoods had 100 genetically modified males released and the other two neighbourhoods had 500 GM males released and they were then free to breed with the local females. The researchers looked at the mosquito populations in these neighbourhoods the following November to April and found there was an 88 to 96% decline in the insects numbers compared with a fifth nearby neighbourhood that wasn't exposed to any of the GM mosquitoes. Wow, that's a massive decline, isn't mm. it? Um, and actually not many mosquitoes released in the first, only 100 or 500. It's, it kind of seems hardly any to release in a whole neighbourhood. Did the 500 one do better than the 100 dose? Not substantially so. I mean, how long the engineered gene persisted in the local mosquito population actually depended on the number of mosquito generations that were produced rather than the initial number of GM males that were released. And so is this permanent if you can wipe out 96% of them? Is that it all, all over? 
No. So the researchers monitored the mosquitoes routinely via traps, and as they expected, the gene eventually disappeared. This occurred over around six mosquito generations, which is roughly six months. So the GM mosquitoes must be periodically released, perhaps even preempting when mosquito-borne infections typically peak. So in Brazil, where infections like dengue are endemic, Oxitech has launched a box-type-like device that contains GM male mosquito eggs, and it's then up to the locals to add water to the box so the eggs hatch. Wow. Okay, so the next part of the the story, I guess, is did the infections that are carried by mosquitoes, did they go down as a result? The researchers weren't looking for this. They were just focusing on monitoring changes to mosquito populations. But they're particularly interested in the potential of GM mosquitoes to tackle dengue. And similar efforts in Australia and Indonesia suggest that releasing GM mosquitoes can cut dengue rates by more than 75%. Okay. And tell us why, you know, what the outcomes can be, what the importance of this is. Mm. So focusing on dengue particularly, the infection is usually mild, but it can be life-threatening. Climate change also means these mosquitoes have the potential increasingly to survive and breed outside of endemic regions. So it's becoming more of a global issue. Existing control methods include nets, which not all at-risk people have access to, or insecticides, which mosquitoes can develop resistance against. So there's a need for a more long-term solution. Yeah. And I remember that um, there has been a little bit of work looking at what happens when you remove, if you did completely remove a mosquito from an Mm. ecosystem, because there is a quite a valid worry that, you know, things might rely on it and it might be like getting rid of a species, but actually it doesn't seem to do too much or, or hardly any noticeable effect. So in other words, it's all right for us to remove this species from from an ecosystem and certainly when you get you think of the potential benefits mm, definitely it's life form of the week time and i actually i'm breaking the rules a little bit because it's not the most pleasant of uh life forms so this week it's everyone's most hated amphibian the cane toad yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah um they are famously hated in Australia. I mean, has anyone, have you guys, I've seen them over there and they are weird and quite weird animals. I love all animals, but yeah, they, those ones are difficult to love. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, native to South America, but introduced in Australia, you know, famously disastrously in the 30s, the 1930s. And actually, you know, you might not like them already, but they're going to get even worse now. Go on, tell yeah. me more. Yeah, yeah. So they lick their own hearts when they swallow prey. Okay, that's yeah. grim. <laughs> yeah, um, so we've got a story about this and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Basically, someone put a cane toad um, and filmed a cane toad eating using an x-ray camera and you can see as they eat, the tongue gets drawn right back down the throat and on average it stretches more backwards into the body than it does forwards when they're you know trying to lick out their tongue to catch prey. One of the scientists said they thought there was something wrong with the videos because they, you know, they weren't looking at it. What's going on? They, they thought there's no way the tongue can be going behind the back of the skull. And what happens is, as the tongue goes back into the mouth, I'm just wondering if everyone's going to be turning off the podcast. At this point. <laughs> um, there's a hyoid, which is this cartilaginous sling that supports the tongue and the throat, and that that the tongue and the hyoid glove that bumps into the heart because it goes so far back which is really quite disgusting. And then, the, and then to sort of pry the prey off the tongue that's stuck to it like a beetle or something, this hyoid then like pushes and scrapes the tongue on the back of the throat. 
This is wow. pretty raw to listen to just after breakfast. I'm just yeah. going to say, <laughs> why why would you study this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, the, the question did occur to me as well. Apparently, it's to help compare between uh, frogs, salamanders, lizards and mammals to, be- to better understand how tongue-based capture has evolved in these different groups. Wow, wow. Well, it sort of makes me glad that I spend my days reporting on the climate crisis, to be honest. (laughs) Cheer cheer yourself up with the climate crisis after that story. And that's all for this week. Thanks to our guests in the pod, Madeline Cuff, Sam Wong, Chris Sims and Alexandra Thompson. And thanks to you for listening. Do tell everyone about our show and subscribe so you don't miss out. And we've got a bonus episode coming this week on Monday, so do look out for that. It's about some of the most ancient living organisms in Europe that I went to see. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.